Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, we've got something completely new, different for you on this episode, which I really hope you'll get a lot of value from. I get a lot of requests for coaching, and of course, I I can't uh, fulfill them all. And I was coaching one particular lady, Joanna, who sort of halfway through the call, she said, oh, I'm recording this. I think I probably swore or something. And I didn't know she was recording it. And it gave us both an idea. We, We kind of had the idea at the same time that wouldn't it be cool to do a, a proper live coaching call and then have it as a podcast episode so many other people could kind of maybe get in my head a bit and, you know, and, and sort of learn how to be coached, learn how to ask questions and how questions would be asked and answered. So she had a load of other questions. We booked in a second coaching call and she recorded. It's about 35 minutes. And what it is, is a live coaching call with me coaching Joanna. She got all sorts of questions together. She really grilled me on all sorts of things around business, making money, scaling, you know, networking, also parenting and you know, dealing with impatient kids and impatient parents and all sorts. So I really hope you'll get good value from it. It's like a voyeuristic over-the-shoulder view of me running a live coaching call. So let's get straight in. There'll be nothing at the end. So once it finishes, it finishes. And um, thank you for tuning in to The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Good morning, Krob. Morning, Joanne. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. It's a, you've booked a couple of these calls in. Yeah, I booked six of them in a the row. Three in oh. October and three in November. Is it okay? This is what... It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Fine. Yeah, so um, thanks for sending your questions through. Fire away. I'll let you ask them and I'll answer them. Okay. So the first, my question is uh, the first one. How did you choose your first mentor? Well, I mean, my first mentor, who I didn't know was a mentor at the time, was Mark. Okay. Um, So he was like a peer, partner, friend and mentor. Yes. Um, So, yeah, that would be... I met him probably... I didn't go in, we kind of found each other. Um, mentors come in a lot of different forms. They can come in for the form of people you respect and admire that you know, people that you respect and admire that you don't know, but you follow their work. It can be people you've got in your network because we can all learn from each other. Of course. And, you know, we, we, we all have something to offer. So, yeah, so my answer to that question is my first kind of, mentor in the area of business and money and um yeah just to sort of go from sort of being a consumer to being a producer go from being a sort of spender to an investor was mark mm-hmm. yeah and, so how many and, I, met- and, I met, and i met him at the holiday inn at a property networking event in 2006 2006 yes mm-hmm. yeah. and how, how did he know that you are going to be the right person to be to be mentored well i don't think he did to be honest, and I don't think I did, because often you don't. You know, how, how do you know when you're going to meet the person that you fall in love with? You don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a series of events. So it's, it starts with an open mind first, you know, a, a building of rapport and a care for other people as well as yourself, and a, an aligned vision and some aligned interests, but importantly, some varied and opposing skill sets 
and personality traits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no point in JVing with, partnering with and being mentored by someone who's just like you and has the skills that you have because then you um, they're not able to teach you the things you lack, but you already know about the things you don't lack. Of course, yes. So, um, you know, that's so... It's got to be somebody who complements the skills, yes? Yeah, exactly. And, and you get to know that over a period of time, you know, when you, uh, you know, that develops as you start to know them. You know, some things happen to sort of pique your mind to know that they could be the right person, but it's kind of counterintuitive to what your brain tries to tell you. But if you find them a bit weird, a bit strange, a bit eccentric, they challenge you a bit. If some of the things that they say and do, you kind of see eye to eye on, sometimes they're thought processes can frustrate you they can you know they can slow you down when you want to go fast they can speed you up when you want to go slow and they can overanalyze when you just want to make a decision you know whatever so you know the old me would have gone oh you know well they're not suited to me i don't like them i don't like the way they think this is not the way i see the world and so in, in the past i probably would have been disattracted to people like that but that was my naivety Because ultimately, I don't need to partner with me. And um, I'm a master at what I'm a master at, and I'm a disaster at what I'm a disaster at. So I need someone who's a master at my disaster, and I need to be a, I need to be a master at someone else's disaster. Yeah, I understand. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and as it turns out, Mark and I, were we dovetailed like that. You know, over a period of time, I sort of got to know his intricacies, masteries, and eccentricities. And um, he certainly got to know mine. And, yeah, and... I guess at a moment in time, we realized we were very different, although we probably weren't consciously aware of it because people like us weren't teaching us it. And, um, you know, and we saw how we could complement. So he was good at uh, properties, buying, managing, refurbing, cost saving, analyzing, scrutinizing, keeping costs down, researching. You know, he's great at all of that. And, that, and I am, while some of those things I can do, I do them painfully and unwillingly. And many of them I can't even do or I don't like to do. Uh, and then I guess he saw in me someone with strategy vision, probably, you know, someone who could turn their hand at sales and marketing, branding, design, all of this kind of stuff, which, you know, when we set up Progressive, we needed all of that as well as buying houses. Of course. And, um, you know, and so after reading the EMIF, what this was 10 years ago, we sat down with our organizational charts We filled in all the names of the company we wanted at the end, which had 14 people. And it was either Robert Mark and Robert Mark and Robert Mark and Robert Mark. And we were able to clearly see visually, you know, like a, an org chart, a hierarchy of tasks of which we divided between ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, if we'd have all wanted the same, it'd have been seven full and seven empty and I'd have been with the wrong partner. Of course. And so how many mentors do you have now, can I ask? Oh, well, many. See, see for me now, I, I like to have mentors who are specialists. Sorry. So, you know, I'm, I'll have mentors in business, mentors in finance, mentors in personal development, mentors in health and fitness. So basically kind of thing. in every sphere of life? Yeah, every sphere of life I feel the need to improve upon. So yes. I'd probably say off the top of my head six or seven okay. I have. But then, you know, I, I, I don't see a mentor in terms of a, I pay you 50,000 a year, you give me unlimited access to you and blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, that's one kind of mentor. I've got mentors in my team, you know, who are very skilled in their areas of expertise. I have got mentors that I pay or travel to see or, or go to all their courses. 
I've also got you know people that I I follow all of their work, even though I've not met them personally. You know, read everything that they write and listen to everything they produce and that kind of thing. So yeah, I've probably got seven, six or seven of those. But but in terms of the sort of imagined ones, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by a lot of people who are very successful. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, might, might be an example. I'm very inspired by how he, what he's done and how he's lived his life. So I follow all of his work where I can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how how do you increase your creativity? How can you learn the skill of being creative? Okay, so I'm glad you said learn the skill of being creative because I believe that it is a learnable skill. Because a lot of people think, oh, I'm not creative, I can't do it, my brain doesn't work like that, I'm left brain, not right brain, or right brain, not left brain. You know, they stereotype themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, a bit like if someone stereotypes themselves as ADHD and assume they can't concentrate on anything, then that's what they become, despite the fact that they can concentrate on what they love to do. Any 13-year-old can concentrate on computer games, for example, or any 14-year-old boy can concentrate on girls. So it's not like they don't have the skill, it's just latent and they haven't appreciated in themselves that they have it how, how do you develop that skill where well, you practice you practice the things that develop that part of your brain you know like exercising a muscle i did a podcast on it so you, you, you may have listened to that or if you haven't listened to it uh, i have wait. yes i have okay yeah. great so some of those things to do are study how you know any books cds audios podcasts that do teach you how to be more creative Study them. That's number one. Number two, I think when you put yourself in the around and in the space of things that are creative, you become creative. So I've just walked into my garden to do a workout, and I'm looking at this beautifully designed chair um, that you know we bought some of them for the the garden furniture. I'm looking at this kinesis gym machine, which is like a really well designed, almost four dimensional cable system, and I'm just thinking, wow, someone somewhere has been able to have an idea about that and um, you know we've got a tire in our garden a 50 100 kilo tire that i used to flip and um i don't flip it anymore because it digs up and all the, the grass ruined but what we've done is we've laid it in the middle and bobby and i chip into it and it's, and it's really made him enjoy chipping mm-hmm. and you know little shots at golf so you know i'm looking around all these things that uh, that creativity has happened for them to be produced or used or used in a different form and when you go when you see art buildings you listen to music you know progressive music and things that are, are creative i think that that creativity rubs off on you you know a bit like if you spend time with a billionaire and you, you pick up all a lot of their tips and tricks you know that rubs off on you of course it does so, um, the ways that i've been creative in the past because most of my creativity by the way is not original what it is is me seeing something that was creative and putting my own spin on it to make it i guess me original but not original original so i used to write a lot of poetry when i was an artist and a lot of it was inspired it wasn't copied it was inspired If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. 
minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. musicians a lot of my art would be inspired by the mood i was in from the music i was listening to a lot of the strategies and tactics i teach on my podcast or um you know in in my books are things that are inspired by other people who've you know shared their work or inspired by problems that people have got me looking to solve that problem and come up with a creative solution and also understanding that creativity, don't put pressure on yourself that creativity means you've got to be the, you know, Leonardo da Vinci. You know, you've got to change the world with every idea you have. You know, like there's a little valve that stops ketchup falling out of the upside down bottle and someone got 13 million for that. Someone got 75 million US dollars um, for five years of royalties for um, from Hasbro for designing a super soaker. And a super soaker is essentially just a water pistol. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, I think there are some ideas for you. Okay, thank you. And how do you research information for your books? Uh, how do I research information for my books? Well, I mean, I have a kind of rule when I'm learning something or writing something. Because the thing is, when you write, it's also a learning process. So writing isn't just a teaching process. It dovetails a learning process. Because as you write what you know and you put it into a physical form, you learn. And then as you write what you know and you realise actually... You don't know as much as you thought you knew, and then you have to go and research, and you find the experts in that niche, you learn. So for me, it's just who are the top experts, commentators, most respected people with the most amount of experience, knowledge, and history in this subject that I want to learn from. So for example, you know, when I'm writing my section on capitalism in my new book, Money, you know, I study John Maynard Keynes, I might study um, Milton Friedman, I might listen to Mervyn King's new book, because obviously he was the governor of the Bank of England and did economics at Cambridge. And as soon as you start to ask yourself, who are the top people, you read the three top people, they reference their three top people, and all of a sudden you have nine top people. You go through the second layer, you have 27 top people, you have more than enough knowledge and experience through them. Then what you do is you learn and study that. You, that comes through you. When it comes through you, you put your unique takes spin on it filtered through your experience parenting schooling geography you know values beliefs and then that kind of becomes something that's unique even though really it's just second hand of second hand of second hand of second hand of second hand going back through hundreds of generations okay i understand thank you and another question what are kris please what kra is a key result areas okay so that means, sorry, I'm just doing some dips at the moment while we're talking, trying, trying to leverage my time. So key result areas are areas in your or anyone else's day, week or life in business or the things that you do in your life that make you the happiest that are the key things that you can do that achieve your goals and outcomes. So, yeah, what are the highest priority, highest, mon- highest monetizable, most valuable tasks you can do in your day that will get you towards your vision? They are key result areas. Now, if you don't fill your time with priorities, then time will get filled with other people's priorities, which will be your posteriorities. I, it won't, they won't be your priority, they'll be someone else's. And 
you all know that feeling when you seem to be putting out everyone else's fires and dealing with everyone else's emergencies and people making their importances your importances, even though they don't progress you forward. And people get sucked into that because they don't know what their own key result areas are. So for me, a key result area six years ago would have been doing public speaking. Now a key result area for me is teaching public speakers so they can do public speaking for my businesses. So you can see how key result areas can go up to a higher level of abstraction. A key result area for me eight years ago wasn't writing books. key result area for me was going out and doing viewings, offers, that kind of thing. But now a key result area for me is writing books because one book can help tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. A key result area for me might be continuing to share and inspire the vision to my team. Because if you don't have a team, then sharing a vision to yourself, uh, it might not be a key result area at the time. But if you've got a team of 60 people, if you work yourself, one person can work. If you inspire 60 people, 60 people can work. So that, you know, might be another key result area, for example. And how, how do you find your team? Where do you look for people that would like to share your vision? Uh, okay, so um, that's not a simple one-word question, but the simple one-word... Sorry, there's not a simple one-word answer to that. But the generic one-word answer is I find them anywhere and everywhere and I'm always looking for them. Okay. So, you know, a bit like if you're single and, you know, you, you haven't had much love and intimacy for a few years, everywhere you go, your radar will be on. You'll be looking in the post office, you'll be looking in the gym, you'll be looking everywhere because you're like, oh, you know, and so desperate. for me, okay, maybe, maybe you, you weren't as desperate as me back in the day, but, um, but you, it's the same with finding talent for my team. I'm looking everywhere. I'm looking when I'm walking the shopping center. I'm looking, I just joined a Facebook group called, uh, which is about, um, it's basically like a recruitment in Peterborough. You know, I, I noticed that and I thought, I've got to join that group. Uh, I'm always looking on social media in progressive communities here. We're looking at recruitment agencies. We're going on the recruitment websites. We're looking for referrals from our team. Someone who just joined our team is the brother of a great team member of ours. We're always looking for talent, so I'm looking everywhere. You know, the standard ways might be recruitment agents. I'm always looking in role because when you look in role, you, you know, you, it's almost like you get to test them. You see them doing it in their role. Okay. So, you know, you always want to be looking at letting agents, estate agents, managers of letting and estate agents. You know, if you ultimately want someone to manage your property business, they're going to be probably more likely to be good than someone you found off Monster, the Monster website or from a recruitment agent. So I kind of in my mind and in my business have a role in recruitment policy, which is I'm always open for business to find amazing talent. I'm looking everywhere I can. I'm asking everyone. I'm not limiting my mind only going through one source because I don't want to pay a recruitment fee or whatever, whatever other thing I might not want to do. Okay, thank you. And my pleasure. How do you feel, I don't know if you've got this feeling, a feeling of unhappiness that you're not doing enough? Or you probably don't have this kind of feeling because they are successful. But for other people, if they do quite a lot and they feel they, they are not doing enough. All right, so, um, yeah, a few myths to bust there. Just because I'm successful, quite successful, or whatever you mention me as, doesn't mean I'm any happier or non-happier than anybody else. Also, you know, you said, what, what do you do if you're unhappy because you don't feel you're doing enough? Well, if you're an entrepreneur and... Well, in fact, if you're a human being, because no human being wakes up tomorrow and goes, oh, I want to do less and be less and have less than yesterday. You know, it's in our nature to grow. It's in our nature to specialize. It's in our nature to evolve. So that's, that's always there. And I think what people are trying to do is trying to cure themselves of an ailment they don't have because it's not that something's wrong and they're trying to fix something that's not broken. So it's not an ailment or an unhappiness or an illness 
to, you know, not ever be satisfied. It's human nature to not ever be satisfied. So I think when we understand what it is, rather than make it mean something it's not, it helps. Because on the other side of that, always wanting more is exciting, it's challenging. You know, it's said that the most important thing in someone's role, you know, when you employ them, is to give them challenges to grow. Apparently that's more important than money. Um, it's also to have them feel valued, which is also apparently more important than, than money. So no one is, you know, unhappiness is a, um, is a perception, an, an illusion based on an unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I have this constant itch, this constant need, this constant unfulfilled void for more, 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 more business, more service, more books, you know, more money, more growth, more staff, more properties. But to me, that's not unhappiness. To me, that's the, the, the border between support and challenge. It's the border between, you know, growth and contentment, fulfilment and unfulfilment. And I think, we, we, you know, when you, when you balance the whole equation, you see it for what it is. You know, like, it's an illusion to think that I'm any happier or unhappier because I'm in a perception of someone else's view more successful because, because for me, I'm always looking at the person above me. But then when I get to them, I'm always looking at the person above them. You know, it, it could be an itch that you want to cure, or it could be a drive that always that you always want to push forward. Because mm-hmm. I bet you, if you didn't have that desire for more, and that was taken away from you, that would be like take that would be like taking someone's libido away from them. You know, you what would you do then if you had no desire for more? You'd, you'd be bored. You'd feel unfulfilled. You'd feel like you don't have any value and worth to offer and give. You know, you might as well be a rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And your vision for life, did you have it to start with or when was it crystallized? When did you know exactly what you want? Did you have to speak um, to more mentors or how did you do it? I think that a vision is uh, both an absolute and an evolutionary process. So it wasn't like one day I had no vision and then tomorrow I had the most clear, unique vision of its scale and grandeur. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of it iterates. So, okay. Yeah, it iterates. It's something that evolves daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. So, you know, I would say the more focused on what I, the self and what I don't have I've been in my life, the smaller the scale of the vision I've had. And then the more I've focused on reach, scale, service, balancing my own needs with the, um, the needs of other people, my vision has grown. So, um, yeah, it, it's, I'm always working on my vision. Mm-hmm. Always tweaking it, iterating it. I don't know if you saw Dr. John Demartini when he came to speak. Yes, I did. I think he said he's, he's, he's changed his vision statement 59 times or 69. You know, it was a, you know, over probably a 30-year period. So, you know, you could say twice a year he's checking his vision statement and tweaking it, iterating it, probably, probably increasing its scale. Because as you get bigger, the vision needs to get bigger to drive you to get bigger. The, the vision needs to be bigger than you for you to grow to the vision. Okay. So, um, Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's an iterative process. I probably look at my vision, I'd say, uh, in terms of properly looking at it once to twice a year. I normally go August, December, just because they're quieter months and when things are quiet for me or quieter, my brain starts looking to do things. But do you, do, so, do you look at your vision on your own or do you have to have a group of people around you? No, I don't have to have anyone around me. I mean, I'm, I'll share the vision with people around me if it's relevant to them and if it serves them. But no, I, I'm quiet... You know, I, quite, I just need a coffee and, um, and my phone, and, and, you know, and I'm good to go. Okay. And another question. Where do you find smart people to learn from them? Where? Mm-hmm. Yes, where do you find them? Anywhere and everywhere. I mean, 
everyone's smart in the areas that they're focused on and served and are highest in their values. So, you know, there's smart people everywhere. You just have to find out what they're smart at. So I, I think it depends what you mean by that. You're smart in what regard? Because no one's generically smart. Everyone's specifically smart and specifically dumb. I am the thickest person you'll ever meet at a ballet. I know a bit about business and money, but then I don't know as much about business and money as some of my billionaire friends. Okay. So w what do you mean by smart? I mean, smart in, I mean, business-wise, uh, financial-wise, I mean, this kind of personal development. Yeah, so online, on Facebook groups, business networking events, property networking events, through people you know. If someone you know is smart in business, they'll know five or ten other people who are smart in business. Yeah, just, mm -hmm. um, okay. just, just anywhere and everywhere. And how do you, if you find out somebody who, is, who really wants to ask some questions, how do you approach the person that would be your, let's say, pen, mentor in the future? Uh, never from behind. <laughs> All right, that bombed. <laughs> uh, how, how do you approach the person? Uh, well, I think if you focus on how you can help them, that's the best way to approach someone. So yeah, two ears, one mouth. Listen more than you speak. Ask them questions that get them in state and flow of talking about themselves and their interests because that's when when people are the most alive and vibrant to you and therefore when they're alive and vibrant they're open to you so yeah and another question where do you find inspiration to carry on when you're already successful because i've not reached my vision yet okay and and um, my vision is always going to be bigger than me and the closer i get towards my vision the more it needs to grow to become something bigger so for me the work is never done And um, I'm going to be doing this and loving this when I'm 50 and 70 and 80 and 85 and 90 and 95. I'm never going to let go. I'm never going to retire because uh, the purpose that's inside of me, the fire that's there, it's not a small spark. It's a, it's a forest fire. And I feel a strong urge and need to get it out to help people. And for me, it's addictive to help people. A, because I know that serves mine and my family's interest too, because the more I help people, the more... I get in return. The less I help people, the less I get in return. So I feel like I've cracked the code for my own personal success through the success of others. It's an addictive feeling, you know, when people say, hey, you know, Rob said something to me and it helped. Or, you know, I get I get emails now, like, you know, daily. And I'm talking many a day where people say, you know, I've done this from your book. I've done this from your course, from your talk, from your Facebook posts, from your calls, whatever. And, um, you know... For me, that gives me self-worth and I feel, like, I feel like I'm valuable when I'm giving value to others. Okay, I understand, yes. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Another question is going to be a property related. We've got a house, dilapidated house in Bulgaria and with two acres of land. What do you think we should do with it? Okay, so um, you, you've you knew you were going to catch me out on one question I wouldn't have an answer to. And uh, that's it. I know nothing about the Bulgarian market. Uh, I don't live there. I've been there once to go skiing, and it was nowhere near where you're talking about. And I don't know the values. I don't know the retail market. I don't know population. I don't know anything. So generic. I can only speak generically, okay. strategically. So just any advice, please. Okay. So strategically, I would say, if you're not there, and that's not your focus of where you're scaling your property business, and um, therefore having it is going to be a drain on time and resources... I would look at if it's possible to sell it. Okay. But how you might be able to sell it, you know, whether it has any value for 
land for planning or development because again I've no, no idea how it works in your um, you know in, your, in, in the native country it's not my native it's, it's not my native it just oh, we just bought it okay sure, yeah. sure. Okay. okay right so sorry uh, by in your native I meant in the native yes so I, mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't mean where you're from I meant where it is so it's not your not your personal native country and you're based in the UK and um, it, it, so that frustra- unless you were going to make Bulgaria your focus for the next 20 or 30 years and you were going to try and build your whole portfolio there and move there and base your life around there I, I would say either find a way that you can have it run for you without your time input which is often not that easy to do yes unfortunately or, or, um, or get rid of it okay mm-hmm. and you know, so if, if you can if you can get it rented out and it can pay the debt that it has on it and it can get managed properly, then you might do that. But that, that so rarely happens, you know, in another continent or another country or, you know, a thousand miles away because you have to be there to see it and manage it. And people have to feel your presence to serve your interests. So, you know, people feel Mark's presence because he drives around Peterborough all the time. You know, the letting agency downstairs in, in Mark, where Mark's office is upstairs feels his presence. So they act in accordance with knowing he's there. If Mark lived in Australia, they would not act in accordance with feeling his presence. And therefore, they would put managing his properties lower in their priorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. And can I have just one last question? And yeah. It's a question about children. How do you deal with being impatient with your kids when they, they drive you up the wall? So what do you do then? Okay. <laughs> uh, good question. Well, um, I think one of the naive things I thought in my early days before kids was that the purpose of children is, well, your purpose as a parent is to teach your children. I know that's only one side of the equation now because the children teach you as much as you teach the children. And so the values in the children will be different to your values, as will the values from their siblings and as will the values from your partner to, to balance the family dynamic. So um, you should, if you choose to, you should study the family dynamic more because um, I found it fascinating. Because I'm making note, thank you. <laughs> sure, no, no problem. Because it, you know, if, if you imagine that all of us in a family have the same values. And let's say our values was building a big business and making loads of money and making loads of difference and, you know, the, you know that. Imagine if you, your partner and your kids had that, those values and that vision. Who'd do the housework? Who'd feed the kids? Who'd do the ironing, the cleaning, the cooking, the washing? Who'd take them to school? Who'd look after their safety? Blah, blah, blah. No one would. So it's a complete illusion and delusion for us to think that our partner should have the same values as us and we should instill the same values as us onto our kids. Because if we did that, just like in a JV partnership, if you're both sourcing the property, well, where's the money coming from? So the first thing to get your mind around is we all have our own separate, unique functions and purposes within the family dynamic. And genetics and DNA and the amazingness of life, that they will force that upon you. There's been tests in biology that have shown that um, the values of your children will absolutely genetically be different to you. Because if they were the same, the family dynamic wouldn't have its wouldn't have all of its bases covered in terms of survival and evolution. So you're impatient with your kids because you're trying to impose upon them a value, behavior, belief, or whatever that you want them to do, and they're resisting because they're different to you. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I experience this all the time because I'm obviously trying to, you know, Gemma's trying to impose upon Bobby to do schoolwork and to get ready and go to school, and I'm trying to impose upon Bobby to, you know, learn about business and money and play golf and concentrate on his golf. 
and Bobby's trying to impose upon us. He wants to do dinosaurs and cars and, you know, and whatever else. And the, all this, this web of imposition of values upon each of us is going on. And that's what we might call the struggle, you know, the impatience, the, you know, the whatever you have when you're raising a family. Okay. So there's a fine balance because you want to instill in your children the values that are going to make them grow up to be a child that you think is going to have a good life, make a good living, you know, be a nice, well-rounded, likeable person who adds value and, you know, is able to generate some good money and have good common sense and have good values. You're doing that, but they're also forcing them by, by genetics for them to be different to you. So... When you're feeling impatient with your kids, if you look at what do you need to learn, then I, I think that will help you because they're, try, they're trying to teach you something that you, you don't own in yourself when you're feeling impatient towards them. Mm -hmm. So what is that? Ask yourself that and, um, yeah, it, it should help you. Well, I think we do. The thing is, my, my kids are teenagers, so it's now it's we pass over the small small kids uh, sort of level and you know time. But the thing is, now it's it's good what you are saying. I've got to think about it. Now, um, it's also important to remember that everything you do serves your child in some way. I so, hope so. so. Yeah, well, it does. But but the point is, there'll be things you do that you think doesn't serve your child, and you might beat yourself up about that, feeling guilt and shame and you know whatever else. But it's important to know that that serves a, a value and a function to your child. Also, the things that you do for them that you think serve them, conversely, it challenges them. So, you know, just on a basic level, if you give them lots of love and support and caring, you may feel warm and fluffy and good about that, but that may make them dependent on you. It may make them clingy. It may keep them juvenile. So that's the downside. If you... You know, they're two years old and you tell them to go down to the local market and start selling things and you make them walk home 10 miles when they're three and you get them doing deadlifts and bench presses when they're four, <laughs> you know, that is, um, you know, that's going to challenge them. That's going to, it's, it's, it's going to harden them. It's probably a, a bit, you might call cruel, but it will make them highly dependent and that will serve them in some way. And, and the balance of life and the family dynamic is trying to balance the dependent and independent, the juvenile and the mature, and you know, trying to balance them. And, yeah, it, it's, it's a constantly moving thing. I think, um, you know, teaching yourself to love them for who they are, not who you want them to be, will help. Of course, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I, re I really want my son to be the world number one golfer, but I will love my son whatever number golfer he is, and even if he doesn't do golf and he does ballet. And as much as that will challenge me because of, you know, what I think is best for him, what, you know, what I think for, is best for him, half of it is best for him, and, and half of it maybe isn't. So, um, yeah, hopefully that helps. Okay, lovely. Thank you very much. I think our time is up. Thank you very much for it. And no problem. My yeah. pleasure. Can you, did you record? Yes, I'm recording. I'll send it through yet again, okay? Excellent. Uh, Thanks. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank care. you. S Bye. Speak to you next week. Thank you.